I wanted to run this like a tech organization, a tech company that worked in democratic politics. I didn't want it to be a political company that did tech. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Matthew Stafford, a political technologist who just finished three years as founding CTO of the Democratic Data Exchange, DDX. DDX is an infrastructure company that facilitates a real-time blind exchange of proprietary voter data between progressively aligned organizations, parties, committees, and campaigns. I've been curious for a while about DDX and was happy to get the chance to learn about them. Previously, Matthew worked five and a half years at the progressive data analytics firm, Blue Labs. So Matthew has a lot to say about what it takes to build a good enterprise. If you're interested in tech and politics and entrepreneurship, or in how we're building out the progressive ecosystem, you should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Matthew Stafford, recently of DDX. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Matthew, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I am Matthew Stafford. I am now the former CTO and uh, co-founder of the Democratic Data Exchange. I was doing that for three years. Prior to that, I was a software engineer at Blue Labs, a progressive data analytics company. And then prior to that, I actually worked in the defense and intelligence industries. I was in satellite communication, hardware and software. I was in forward deployed mobile devices when I was doing IC stuff. Got into that in 2008 after I graduated, backgrounds in physics and math. So that was a natural transition, but moved into the progressive space soon after the, the 2012 election and kind of the end of my time doing IC work, which I started to find very distasteful given the things I was working on. Mm, that sounds intriguing. Um, <laughs> what was, I mean, what was the attraction for you, uh, physics? I, I noted that you did a, both a bachelor's and a master's in physics, and it, it's a super interesting field, but what took you there? Uh, it was a bit of a circuitous route. So my original field of study was English literature. Uh, <laughs> I actually did really, I, I had to take uh, algebra and trigonometry in college. That's how bad I did at math in high school. Um, but I was taking those uh, in college when I was in English Lit, uh, and I was taking physics as an elective course, just filling out uh, a science elective, uh, and really fell in love with the field, just the drive to answer fundamental questions for the sake of knowledge itself, and trying to figure out why things are the way they are in a, you know, a way that can be predictive. Um, and so that's how I got into that. And then, you know, there's kind of two groupings of physicists. There are the theorists, the very, very, very smart people who are coming up with the theories, and then the experimentalists, um, which are the ones who are either trying to find new phenomena or like find evidence for the theories. And I fell in the latter camp. And of that latter camp, a lot of those tend to be tool builders, which is where I kind of learned uh, my engineering background because I don't have any formal education in computer science, a thing like that. It was always to solve problems in physics, to do research in physics. My interest on that side of things actually ended up being mostly the tool building side of things. Uh, I really liked writing software to run the hardware, things like that. My interest kind of changed over time and the applied physics was moving more towards the, the tool building and data analytics side of things because it's, you know, 
the experimental side is very much data dependent. And so a lot of the work I was doing in the physics of the near-Earth space, space environment, so I think things like solar winds, cosmic rays, uh, stuff incident on the Earth involves a lot of data collection. Uh, and so I took my engineering work, kind of turned it into data work. My path progressed that way over time as I got more and more into the engineering side of things, the tool building side of things. And that's essentially how I ended up where I am today, which is a, a tool builder for progressive tech. Yeah, I, I'm kind of intrigued by someone who took algebra and trig in college, which, you know, having the, I don't know, the nerve to go into physics, because, you know, I remember studying in the library alongside of friends who were physics majors, some of whom were you know, like state math champions and things like that. And still the math and the physics was challenging. And to overcome kind of being a little behind, it sounds like uh, that's something. It must have really pulled you in that direction then. Yeah. Well, to clarify, I also took six years undergrad. I had uh, two victory laps at Penn State. So it wasn't something I completed on time for a variety of reasons. Some of that, including just being behind on the math side and the science side, frankly. Math never really clicked until college. Like I'm very bad, still very bad at just using numbers, like basic addition, addition subtraction, multiplication, division. Like I can't do great mental math, things like that. But when it comes to symbolic math, which is really the ba- like the background of what is driving the physics, that makes a lot more sense to me because then then it's you're not getting hung up on like you know you know what's twelve times twelve or something. It's just symbolic. It doesn't matter. It's just representative. And so once I kind of wrapped my head around that, understanding that I didn't actually need to be good at what people think as math to do the work, uh, it kind of it kind of clicked. And then uh, being able to use that tool set to solve interesting real life problems, like this physics starts with things that you can see and touch kinematics. It's like, you know, pool balls colliding and things going up and down ramps and then being able to do this symbolic math, math and figure it out and then just plug in the numbers after the fact. Like what you have written down, you can throw it in Excel, uh, do whatever, figure it out. Uh, when I was in school, it was still like, you know, measuring the distance between burns on a paper. If you ever did that old, like basically the 60 hertz timing method of doing like kinematics labs, it was that sort of thing. It's like being able to show the math has like applies to the real world is what really drove me that direction. I'm a little stubborn too. Like I didn't like the idea that I was that bad at math. It was like, it just seemed weird to me that I was like just that awful at it. So like, I mean, to be clear, I failed Calc three times, I think, in uh, undergrad. So it took me a little bit to really get my head around everything once I got there. But like, you know, after that, I have a math minor. I was, you know, doing real complex analysis, things like that. But it was just like, I, I didn't like the idea that, you know, I couldn't understand this, uh, which is a big driver in getting the physics degree. Well, I just think, I think it's just very admirable to keep pushing forward. A lot of people give up after failing a calc class once and to push it's a on. It's embarrassing. <laughs> There's very famous people who failed the bar several times and then gone on and been successful lawyers. It is pretty important in life. When you were growing up and when you were in college, the time you're talking about, was politics part of your world? Was, was it part of your family? How did you operate in that arena? Uh, almost not at all. The most I think we dealt with politics at home was uh, my, my family ran a ceramic tile business up in uh, Southeast PA. And so like political discussions were mostly around like the rising insurance rates for small businesses. Like it was a very small business. They provided coverage to their, to their employees. It was a family business. So it was a, it was a handful of folks, but like their voting record kind of reflects like who they thought was going to keep them able to pay for insurance for employees. And that's kind of, the extent of things. There wasn't really extensive philosophical conversations about that. I remember my mom used to talk about campaigning for Nixon back in the day. And like, it was just kind of like an anecdote of a thing she did when she was a kid. I had a high school buddy who campaigned for Lynn Swan when he was running for governor of Pennsylvania, uh, which obviously didn't go anywhere. He was a way better wide receiver than he was a candidate. Yeah. You know, as I think we're seeing in Georgia too, uh, maybe we should keep the football players out of politics. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I hope we don't have Herschel Walker as good as he was as a running back as a senator. Yep. <laughs> Tell me a little about the the work that you were doing that overlapped with getting the masters a little bit, and kind of still in industry that you were doing before Blue Labs. Yeah. Um, so 
2008, not a great year to find a job. It's when I graduated college. And so there's one industry that's always hiring, and that's defense, um, especially with uh, physics background and everything. So I you know, took the engineering skills I learned while I was my undergrad and started a company called Viasat. Um, they do commercial work too. Like I think if you fly United, most of their Wi-Fi is actually provided by Viasat. They own an internet ISP or a satellite ISP now. But they also do a lot of defense work. And so I was up in Germantown, Maryland um, at the CompSat Labs building doing satellite hardware and software. Did some DARPA stuff uh, for a minute while I was there. Just some like DARPA are always like, you know, fail fast projects, but some of the work was interesting. Had clearance at the time. And while I was there, uh, especially in the DMV area, a lot of organizations will pay for you to go back to college. And the amount they pay for credit just happens to be the exact amount that two courses a year cost, which is also the amount that they get for a tax break for paying for for paying for, uh, people to go back to school. So it's a weird little thing, but I used that opportunity to go to um, Hopkins. Uh, they had a, a professionals program in applied physics. Uh, it was based out of the applied physics lab up in Laurel, Maryland. And so I talked to my manager at the time into approving. Because normally it's like, oh, you go for EE or you know, systems engineering, things like that, um, not physics, but I talked them into that applied physics or physics is how I got here in the first place. So continuing that path is actually valuable from a career standpoint. The intent was always to go to a PhD that didn't pan out for a number of reasons, but I was, you know, going part-time for my master's while I was working at Viasat and then actually finished up when I had started the subsequent job at DDC, which is another confusing acronym considering I worked recently at DDX. I moved from defense doing hardware and software for TACOM stuff to a purely, you know, intelligence community firm, uh, NSA subcontractor, uh, where it was more hardware work, but much smaller scale, more kind of experimental um, for, frankly, a terrible company, uh, which is what eventually gets me to get out of the space. Tell me a little about that. You've twice referred sort of somewhat disparagingly about the work and the enterprise. What did you not like about it? So Viasat, I have nothing but good things to say. Um, it was one of the most like supportive environments I've worked in in terms of having, like, I, I still think the best manager I've ever worked for. Uh, it was incredibly diverse in a way that I haven't seen since. It was a great place. It was communications stuff, so it didn't feel bad. Even the DARPA stuff was all about communication. So it wasn't anything that seemed on its face awful. Um, when I switched to the IC stuff, uh, it was a little bit of a meet and switch. Uh, I thought I was getting out of defense work into commercial work because this firm essentially was trying to move into the commercial space. Uh, but I got there and immediately had to apply for a TSSCI, the like full scope poly, that whole thing, where I learned that I'd be working on an NSA subcontract. Nothing, I like everything is classification has been blown on already. And the stuff that was classified isn't even the stuff I'm talking about. But what it was were these tablets. And the tablets had a lot of bioinformatics hardware on it. So cameras, fingerprint scanners, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea behind these tablets is they get forward deployed, which is the phrase where they get sent over to the Middle East. And they were to identify victims of drone strikes, essentially. The goal here was to figure out who the fuck they bombed after the fact. Mm, that's uh... that once, once I found out what those were for, and then they also started selling them to DHS, uh, the idea to find, like, figure out who was coming through the border, if they found bodies in the desert, things like that. And so, like, once they don't tell you what they're for explicitly while you're building them. So once I found that out, it was like, well, no, <laughs> this isn't this is not my jam anymore. And that's when I looked to look to get out. Um, how did you find Blue Labs? Uh, LinkedIn, yeah. <laughs> of all places. Yeah. Uh, so they had just started not quite a year, not even a year prior, uh, and I was looking. Uh, and I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I know I wanted to get more into the data side of things, given I just wrapped up my master's, had a lot of data work in that. And I was trying to figure out like what aligned with my values. Like I had done something that was antithetical to how I felt. And I was looking for something that was more, you know, what's do good in the world with what I know. And just kind of stumbled in them and applied. I guess I'd interviewed one of the founders, Eric, some time ago. Tell me about Blue Labs. Tell me about working there. What kind of people, what kind of projects, how was it for you? So I had a mixed experience. I am thankful for them getting me into the space, like very thankful. Like I would not be where I am today without Blue Labs, without the kind of guidance in the context, the guidance in the space that I received there. 
Um, the number of people I've, I've met when I was working there who are still both close friends and close colleagues is amazing. And there's just a ton of like during the time period I was there, there's a ton of amazing people who came through Blue Labs. But, you know, there's also some downsides and the, the negatives of working there is uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there was a big unionization effort when I was there. Uh, I was part of the organizing committee on the union. I had talked to Thomas Gensimer, who at least had mentioned uh, that Blue Labs was undergoing a unionization push. And I think he was dubious about that as being the type of organization that really needed that. What was your take on that? I mean, there's a reason that we tried to unionize and it was because like personally, I wasn't affected by a lot of the issues that people were driving aside from some of the work on the, the CMS side, but it was just a hugely unequal work environment in terms of how people were treated, promotion opportunities, DEI initiatives, not getting yelled at by your bosses, things like that. And so like people had a variety of different experiences there. And the goal was like, my view on unions is that it essentially functions as external HR for your organization. That's the best case for it. But like, it is a hugely valuable thing, I think, especially in the space that generally don't have like strong HR organizations to have. It helps you establish norms. It helps you actually make sure that your organization is more efficiently run, helps make sure that you're not going to get yourself in a lawsuit later because you have the union actually helping keep the peace among the workers and the management. I think Blue Labs desperately needed a union. Uh, and you know when we, when we tried to organize, we actually thought it was going to be an easy sell because we thought that the founders being who they were, were pro-union. But it was very much a you know unions for thee, not for me situation. So they brought in Seifert and Shaw, same law firm that fought against Cesar Chavez uh, to help quash the union. My former company, I know Stu, who was running it at the time, decided that that wasn't a palatable move at all and and said he would not fight any unionization move. And some parts of it have unionized. Did the issue, the internal issues that you're referring to, which sounded like about inequity and promotion and diversity and things like that, did that take away from the mission for parts of the time or, or I, I actually don't think so. Did you see that recent article by Ryan Grimm <laughs> in the intercept, which talks about progressive organ? Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to love that article for a couple of reasons, but I think the, the union stuff is off base um, because the reason that we push for the union is because we really believe the blue labs and loved blue labs that much that we wanted to make sure that it remained a good place to work. Like the folks who were doing the organizing were really doing this with the best interest of the work we were doing in mind. It was so that we can continue to have good talent and so we continue to do good work uh, because we wanted Blue Eyes to be strong because a lot of us had put in a lot of time there. A lot of us had, you know, also a lot of like, you know, energy into the organization uh, doing things that were well outside our job descriptions to make sure that it kept running well. We even started from the standpoint, like we didn't go public with it. We never went public with it uh, until it was quashed because we didn't want the founders to ever have egg on their face or have to be feel like they were pressured from the outside on it because we always thought they would do the right thing, which is voluntarily recognized. Uh, but no, they, they went side for the shawl, played hardball. They tried to get themselves in the bargaining unit at one point. It was either get them in or exclude a bunch of other people. A lot of meetings about how the union is going to be really bad and it's going to be like, there are things you can and cannot say. And I don't think labor law has caught up to like unionizations and startups. So like, their big thing is like, well, if you unionize, we're never going to get bought, which is what Gessimer was brought in to do, was to try and sell the company, um, which is why he exited. Because if he can't sell the company, why is he going to be there? Although, obviously, I've seen unionized companies get sold for large sums of money. So they may have been actually wrong about that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very fascinating when there is that conflict between stated values and actual practice. And, you know... I have some sympathy for the point of view that those founders may have had that it's a level of bureaucracy that might slow down an enterprise. And my, I guess my attitude would be long before there's a drive to unionize because of dissatisfaction to make sure that there's a high level of satisfaction and take care of that internally. But as organizations get bigger and more complex, then there are real roles for unions and all of these companies have difficult decisions about equity in compensation and things like that, that they don't all get right. Many of us don't get right. 
and there isn't aren't simple solutions to it. So it's it's interesting to hear that about Blue Labs, which I, I hadn't really heard internal stuff about before. It was done with an eye towards that. It's like it was, I mean, that's when we tried it, it was probably five years in. Um, so it wasn't like a new, new company, but it still had not grown up enough, which is really why the push happened. And it was kind of to, to move it to the next level to mature it, um, which is a thing a union can do. It says a lot that everyone who was there during that time has essentially left. Like none of the people aside from the people who started it and like were day one employees are still there. Yeah, I think there may be one or two, but like with 50 people, they had that much turnover among their staff. And I think the other thing is that a lot of the people who moved on from Blue Labs, like there's a whispered network of like unkind things about it. Don't go work there. Like you're running into this, you're running into that. Like people don't say good things about working at Blue Labs the same way they say about like being, you know, an ex-Googler or, you know, ex-Van or ex-DNC or whatever. It's like, there's not that like kind of good feelings of having been there. There's always like everyone had a bad exit. My sense though, is that there was a lot of pretty good work done and uh, certainly work done at very high levels of U.S. politics, sometimes enough to get blames for major problems like Hillary's loss, forgetting about for a second about some of these controversies, the actual work of the firm and who they chose as clients. What did you see in that regard? I mean, CMS is still, I think, the most impactful project they've ever done. This is the outreach work they did for um, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services to make sure that people were enrolling in health insurance. It was the only form of outreach during the Trump administration. It's the only thing that funding didn't get cut on. Um, although there was like a one-day period where it did, uh, which led to heavy drinking among the staff. <laughs> but yeah, like I still think that is the most impactful thing to do because it is literally saving lives. Um, it was also one of the toughest projects to work on, but I, I still think that is it's the thing that keeps it afloat. They get a lot of money. It's a government contract. It's good money. Uh, it lets it funds the other poor work they're doing, which is you know not high paying work. Um, I mean, they're still. I know they're still working with the DNC. I'm still. I know they're still working with the sister committees and stuff. But like, it seems like people are happy with the work they did there overall. So I think I actually stayed more on the government side of things uh, and the product side of things when I was there, not so much on the. Uh, the political side of things. But from what I hear, people are relatively happy with that work. Um, yeah, I, I still think like, like, I mean, there's always misses. Like they're trying to find commercial contracts, things like that. And it's not for any fault of their own where some of those just don't land. But I think overall, like the work they do is good. And I think it's well-meaning good. I think they are, us, like union stuff aside, trying to do good work for the space, whether it be political, commercial, or government. When I mentioned to a couple people that I was interviewing you, I I heard, I don't know you, right? I, I heard uh, that you would be a, a person of strong opinions <laughs> and maybe some that were fairly contrarian. What do you think they were alluding to in that regard? Oh, it could be a number of things. Um I mean, I have strong opinions on how the data ecosystem is shaping up or has shaped up over time. That's always a fun one. Uh, how funding works in this space, the failures in 2020 of the various big tech efforts. The list goes on. <laughs> well, good. That gives me the a chance. Thing is one. That gives me a chance to <laughs> a, to ask you about them. You were chief technology officer, and you said co-founder of the Democratic Data Exchange, which I keep thinking is DDE, but people say DDX, right? So the true, I was like a sign on later co-founder. Um, Lindsay Shue Cortez is the real founder, uh, like the real primary founder of DDX. So like she's the one who made everything happen. Uh, and she's the reason it was so successful. But like during the early days where it was sort of what it was, it's like, what do we call it? What's the, what acronym are we using? And DDEX stuck for some people. And so you'll see that occasionally, but uh, we ended up going with the DDX. Well, I, I really recommend against three-letter initial companies, but, you know. <laughs> I know, just such a... <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to monogram your company, they say. Um, so tell me about that, what you know about the founding and the mission at the get-go. So, I mean, as you're aware, uh, Lindsay Cortez was Blue Lab's CEO for a period of time and went over to uh, DNC under Rafi as his deputy CTO. While she was there, and this is something I think she's had in mind for a while, 
is uh, if you remember that the Republicans founded the data trust in 2013, um, which is the there was just that Fox Business article about them. It is a one stop shop for all their data, which includes some of the stuff the exchange does, um, but that, that's voter file and all that. But like she knew that they had this thing um, that are you know especially post 2016 that her tech was kind of lagging a little bit. And so a number of efforts were undertaken while she and Rafi were at the, the DNC. And one of those was DDX, this idea of having a data exchange, which facilitates like the, the blind equivalent exchange of data across the entire ecosystem, soft and hard side. And so while she was there, she spent time trying to figure out what would make this possible because she knew that like data is the lifeblood of the space. People get money for data. No one wants to give their data up. It's valuable. Um, and so getting people to willingly give their data to this thing when that's not something, there's not an organization like that already, uh, was going to be hard. And so she spent her time kind of wrangling the necessary politics to get buy-in. And then she left the DNC um, because, just to be clear, and I think it's been said before, like DDX is an independent organization. It is a for-profit. It is not party-affiliated. It's not C3C4. It is a product tech company. But she left it to spin this up to get it started, to uh, start the thing. And, you know, it went like that for a little bit. And then um, after I left Blue Labs, Labs excuse me. <laughs> after I'm I sort of Blue surprised Labs, you forgot, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, it's been, a, it's been an interesting couple of years. Uh, after I left Blue Labs, I heard she was doing something interesting, didn't know what it was, and approached her about joining on. And that's when I started, you know, started very early before anything had really happened, uh, other than, hey, we, you know, we being like soft side groups, hard side, state party, like all that have like tacitly agreed that this is a good idea and we should try to make it happen. Sounds like you didn't think Lindsay was the problem at Blue Labs if you would go work with her. Oh, Lindsay is one of the few people in the space I will follow job to job. One of the best bosses I've ever had uh, and really held together Blue Labs. Things went way downhill after Lindsay left because... She was kind of the adult in the room, someone who like knew how to manage organizations, knew how to manage people that kept things you know, operating smoothly. Where did DDX find funding, find early employees, and figure out how to fit into the ecosystem? How, how did all that come together? A lot of that is a credit to Lindsay for hunting down the funding. Obviously, like, you know, we can't talk explicitly, well, I'm not there anymore, but we don't talk explicitly about who's funding, but... Some folks like the domain, some folks don't, but like most things in the tech, there's Schmidt money in there. Um, and there's a bunch of other, you know, individual investors, organizational investors who are, you know, investing in the success of the EDX investing uh, in, in the company. That was always, you know, during spinning up 2019, 2020, it's hard to find money for things that aren't electoral politics, but that's something we did manage to do. And I think managed to do successfully. Was Howard Dean part of that? Yep, Howard Dean is our chairman of the board. Um, yeah, big big part of that. And like, I I know you know Howard Dean's history with the original data swap agreement and the state parties and everything. So like, having him involved is really crucial uh, because like the goodwill which he garners among the you know among folks in the space, folks who work with in the space, went a long ways towards making people comfortable with what we were doing. One of the things I always wondered about was when Catalyst first came on the scene, which was founded to build a voter file, do analytics, and handle a lot of this same kind of stuff, that somehow this didn't persist as part of their mission or needed to be done outside in the view of people like Lindsay and Howard. Do you understand why that didn't stay over at Catalyst and why it had to be done outside? I don't. It's... So, I mean, part of it is the, you know, the kind of shifting legalities around, you know, FEC rulings. When the data trust was created, there was a challenge because we thought it was direct coordination between organizations, hard and soft side organizations. Uh, But that wasn't the case. The FEC ruled against that, which opened up a new door for this to happen. But there were things in that, uh, that ruling that explain why the FEC ruled that it was not direct coordination. And so... You know, one of those was that it was a for-profit organization. And so being a for-profit organization was kind of a key to like having an actual outside organization, one that is not nonprofit or whatever was a key to that. And, you know, on the, on the Kyla side of things, it's just like 
when Catalyst was founded, this kind of wasn't on the radar as a thing. I mean, Catalyst doesn't really do a lot of work with the hard side either. I think uh, they originally were wanted to, but then sort of Target Smart beat them in that market. It sort of bifurcated the the DNC and Target Smart sort of together. You alluded to um, some of the other data entrepreneurship stuff that happened around the same time. One of those was Alloy, um, which, <laughs> which was Reed Hoffman, primary funder of, I guess. How did you see that effort and how did that fit in with CDX and the other pieces of this puzzle? What effort? It was a waste of $35 million. And what did Alloy actually accomplish in 2020 is the question. They were always, always looking for someone to tell them what a problem was. They were trying to compete directly with DDX for a while because they thought they should be the exchange. They never had a real idea that they chased down the completion. And with the size of their staff and everything, like a ton of just really brilliant people on their staff, both from the space and from outside the space, uh, were just kind of squandered on not solving actual problems. They got landed with Civitech. So uh, Reed Hoffman could save face and not cry in front of Cory Booker again. But, you know, it's just a, a waste. I think it was just a colossal waste of money. What are you referring to in him crying in front of Cory Booker? I don't know this story. Oh, what was it? It was a AV summit or one of those things. Cory Booker did an interview with Reed Hoffman about the 2020 election. And uh, Reed was basically giving a sob story about how no one likes him. Like they never gave him a chance. Never even Alloy a chance. Alloy was a complete abject failure. Because uh, the politics of the progressive data space sort of rejected that effort. Yeah. This is a thing I have a pretty strong opinion on. It's that folks come into this space thinking that just having a good idea means it's going to happen. But product does not work in the space the way product works in like Silicon Valley. It's not just like a throw money, disrupt, fix the problem. Political product is a different beast. And there's a ton of context and there's a ton of history in this space around new initiatives, how folks work together. And if you come in and just try and throw money at something and try and make it work, you're going to fail. And there was no reading the room. And it was just a constant doubling down on this idea that like, if I throw money at this problem, it will work rather than trying to figure out how to make the politics work, which is what Lindsay did, figure out the politics, then solve the problem. Don't try to solve the problem and then try to sell it because that's never going to fly. And so that's like, that's the lesson learned is that you've got to solve the politics first before you try to bring a product into the space. Reed also was part of funding many, many other initiatives. Any of them you think had value or are you aware of them? Did you track that? Uh, Alloy was the main one I tracked. I know now he's doing what, the uh, ranked choice voting thing. I know he was funding the, the pro-gun anti-abortion Democrat in Texas. I don't know what else he was doing in 2020 though. It's interesting just to hear your your perception of all that. I'm always interested in the entrepreneurship that's necessary in building a new organization like DDX. These things don't happen without a lot of sustained effort. Attention to the politics, like you mentioned, attention to funding in whatever way that happens, attention to the staffing, which you were just about to talk about, I rudely interrupted, and building product, et cetera. T tell me about like what happened there and what's the story. One of my earliest conversations with Lindsay about this was that I wanted to run this like a tech organization, a tech company that worked in democratic politics. I didn't want it to be a political company that did tech. So I wanted to be a real sustainable organization with a healthy work-life balance that kind of smoothed out the ebb and flow of the campaign cycle so that staff could, you know, realistically work there for a long time without getting the burnout that you see on campaign organizations. Because I feel like a lot of tech in this space is spun up out of campaigns. They never really lose that urgency, that like kind of chronic urgency that this is the most important thing in the world, even when it's not. We started from that standpoint is that we want a sustainable organization. And that meant a couple of things. One was that we wanted to keep kind of the the small p politics at the top of the organization and not let that affect the work being done. And so that's something Lindsay was amazing at, uh, was making sure that the, the staff was insulated from kind of the ebb and flow of spinning up a new organization in a highly political space. The other thing we did was, I mean, I'm a, a process guy at heart, was establishing good processes around how we hired, around how we did engineering work, around doing product work, 
for hiring, one thing we did early on was we brought in a Mezzo Solutions. Uh, it's Nina Tom's hiring firm, and she helped us really develop our having a, like an equitable hiring process. Because something that happens a lot in this space is that you have to hire so urgently, the first thing you do is hire the guy you worked with at your last job, which we did. That's something that happened is we just needed to early on. And we wanted to get away from that as fast as possible. And in fact, you're an example of that yourself. Yeah, absolutely. The first three of us were Blue Labs, uh, you know, myself, Lindsay, and Adam Unger, uh, and then Amy Rieger, uh, who is director of partnerships over there, who I know, you know, is, you know, uh, a friend of Lindsay's, um, and they've worked together in the past. So it was like, First, you just need to get a core of people who can make stuff happen because we had a tight turnaround for 2019. But after that, we really focused on bringing people from outside of the space in. So our now chief product officer, Rebecca Mousey, uh, former head of product, uh, came in from AdTech in Silicon Valley. Most of our engineering team is not from politics, for instance. Um, the client side is because the client side, it makes sense that people know the space super well. But having these separate teams, thinking through the process in which you do hiring, development, do all this stuff leads to a sustainable organization. And the we started fully remote before the pandemic, which also was kind of another wrinkle. It helped us during the pandemic because we didn't have to pivot. But one of the things about having a remote company is that everything has to be explicit. All communication becomes explicit. You don't have popping over to someone's desk or you know popping out for happy hour or water cooler conversation. It's anything that you would glean in an office environment just from listening to what's going on now to be made, made explicit needed to be communicated and so we went through iteration after iteration after iteration of this and it's a constant growth thing you always have to reevaluate how you communicate information your meeting cadence your meeting schedules uh like what fits the organization to make sure that folks feel looped in what folks feel connected folks feel like they have a space for feedback both up and down that's really how we, we focused on running it, making sure that there was this space existed for communication, make sure people felt tied in, and also making sure that the day-to-day of getting work was very process-driven. So there wasn't questions over like, what should I be doing next? We had a clear kind of Silicon Valley agile-based development process for product and tech. Uh, and that's what we followed. You know, we had our data analysts doing the real grunt work of normalizing all our data and having a you know, discrete process, which they developed around that was, was crucial. It sounds like you took some of the learnings from some of the dissatisfactions you had at Blue Labs and tried to apply them here. Did being part of the management team and coming on as a founder, did that change your perspective at all about unionization, about some of the other aspects of things that you were concerned about previously? I mean, I talking to Lindsay early on, the thing we agreed on off the bat is if the staff wants to unionize, we're immediately signing off on it. Like if, if they think that it is something that is necessary. And I remember talking with a union rep um, after I left and everything, because I was curious, like, can you unit, like you can't unionize top down. I was like, how do you get your staff to unionize under you? Because I thought it was inherently a good thing to have an, a unionized staff. Uh, and he was like, no, you can't. Like, as a matter of fact, you can't your staff to unionize. Are you unionized? No. No, no, not yet. Um, How big of an organization is it? Uh, about 20 people now. Yeah. Um, what's the business model? Like you said, you're a for-profit. How does money come in? It's a fee for service. Um, it is to join the exchange. You pay an amount of money based on the size of the program you run, essentially. With Emily over there as new CEO, she's pursuing other sources of revenue. But that's that's really the, the big one is the, the fee for service model where you pay to be a member, multi-state organizations pay more, you know, single state pay less, kind of size of the work you're doing. That's really what is, you know, keeping us in the black. Who are the main clients? To quote Lindsay here, the, the first rule of the exchange is you don't talk about the exchange. We never talk about who our clients are. That is how the exchange works. It's a blind exchange. You never know where the data is coming from. Um, it's because it doesn't really matter. Uh, a Biden ID is a Biden ID is a Biden ID. Who are the types of clients? It's, you know, we have the hard side, which is the one that we can kind of talk about explicitly is, you know, we have the hard side as a client. Meaning all of the political campaigns themselves and the party committee type people. That's the hard side. The parties themselves, just not not even like like campaigns go through the parties. It was just, we work with the parties themselves as a vendor. Um, And then on the, on the soft side, it's the organizations who do, you know, electoral and advocacy work, as you can imagine. It is, you know, it can be anyone from... You know, C three C organizations, nonprofits, things like that. People who have outreach efforts, outreach programs uh, during the electoral cycle, or even just the advocacy, doing advocacy work, uh, issue ID, thing like that. 
So it's like that type of organization. What do you see as competition for the work that you do? What are the alternatives that people would go to if they're trying to move data around? Or Because I've heard so many ideas over the years for doing this kind of thing. Do you think this is the main or only way? This is the game. I mean, there, there's still like backward facing data swaps and things like that that have historically happened. But for working in cycle in real time, there's only one option and it's the exchange. Explain why that's important to somebody who kind of maybe just seems like a super arcane piece of politics that they don't really get. Why is this important to winning or doing better as a party as progressives and Democrats? Yeah, I mean... So as an organization, you only have so many dollars to spend and like for your outreach program, for instance. So say I'm a, I'm a C4 working in Kentucky, trying to figure out how to elect a Democratic governor. It's 2019. We're trying to elect this year. I don't have a lot of money. All the money I have is being spent door knocking, getting IDs. But like what I get is limited. But what if you could put that data on the exchange and get more IDs out. So now you don't have to spend, you can use your data to essentially get more data. Now you double the amount of door knocks you've essentially done for your initial cost of work. And so now you don't have to knock those doors. Now when you're doing get out the vote, you have a much larger list to either clean. Um, you can you know, add people who are strong supporters to the list. You can remove people who are strong opponents to, uh, from the list so that you're not wasting money during GOTV by turning out the wrong people. And so what you know, you've essentially doubled your data program for the cost of your data. I would guess that we haven't fully solved this problem despite these efforts, because I hear all over about continued duplication and challenges with resource allocation of this sort. Given that you had three years of looking at this intensively, what do you think else could be improved? What do you think is the direction to keep making things better? Because obviously so much is at stake these days between winning and losing. There's a couple of things. Um, one is just literacy. Um, as with any tool, you have to learn how to use it. You have to learn how it interacts with the other tools you have. Uh, and so DDX, is, like I said, it's kind of a nuanced thing. It's an odd thing. It doesn't function like any other source of information in this space, even though it really does. It's just data. It's the same kind of data that you're used to. It's just showing up from a different source. And so a lot of it is just folks understanding what this data is and how to use it. We had a pilot program in 2019 in, in Kentucky and then really built a thing for 2020. Uh, but, you know, it was live in 2020. It was live in summer of 2020. A lot of soft side orgs have their program set. So, you know, it's, you know, limited usefulness there. We did have an impact, but obviously, like, it wasn't the wide scale usage um, was not everywhere. People had not quite figured out how we fit in their programs yet. Uh, now, 2022, that's going to change. 2024, that's going to change. So, like, the literacy is always increasing, and that's always a thing, just like knowing how to use the thing and take advantage of it. Um, the other side of it is there's, I mean, I, I mentioned this before as a thing I have strong opinions on, is the, like the tech ecosystem as a whole. The Republicans have, they have the statist institution. They have the very top down, like this is how things are done. They have the data trust and they have I360. I360 is their Blue Labs, their Clarity, their, their analytics wing. They, they media buys, all that fun stuff. The data trust is their CRM, their voter file, their exchange, everything wrapped in the one. Uh, and so that's where everything lives. You don't have the integration problems that we do. You don't have the like the data normalization data model problems that we do because it's all just there's just one source of truth there we are the the laissez-faire uh tech ecosystem uh despite you know being center left uh we've leaned hard into like let's see what's going to stick let it go and then we've kind of built this ad hoc ecosystem around it um and there's a ton of good tools don't get me wrong it's just that we don't have a unified direction and i think as the ecosystem becomes more mature and continues to grow, we're moving towards this idea that we need to kind of start coalescing around concepts. And I think that's kind of the big thing that we can start doing is figuring out like, you know, how we want to store all our data, keep all our data in as few warehouses as possible, for instance, and then have toolings sit on top of that, have a CRM then be one source of information and have it tie into a warehouse have things like the various relational tools, the various textures 
tie into a warehouse instead of them being their own like just silos that ad hoc move data where needed. There's a lot of stuff pushes into the van API and then van sync pushes out to warehouses for things like that. Whereas I think we need a more hub spoke mentality where the tools are at the ends of the spokes. So you have, you know, van, you have hustle, you have spoke, which is a poor name to reference in this context, but <laughs> or a confusing name. Uh, but things like that and feeding into a singular warehouse. Like the DNC and the hard side are, have made like great strides here with Phoenix. It's a great concept. It's like having a singular warehouse where things live, having these more standardized warehouse data models where analytics work. What we need to do is start figuring out how to use that a similar like base of knowledge on the soft side. I think BBX is a is a great step here because the way the way I envisioned the ecosystem or ideally would be as a barbell. You have you know Phoenix as plates on one side, you have DDX as the bar between them, the pipe between the two. And then what I want to see is something similar on the soft side. And I think that's where organizations like CTA really shine. See the Community Tech Alliance building out their kind of you know soft side warehousing efforts is, uh, I think, something that can really drive things in that direction. Full disclosure, I, I do advise for CTA. When you look around at that data ecosystem and the software ecosystem generally, what, who do you think is doing really good work and who are you more concerned about? I mean, I mentioned CTA and I'm biased. I think they're doing really good work right now, especially with trying to create this concept of like a Phoenix-like system on, on the soft side. Obviously, I'm partial to DDX. There's um, like smart people with good ideas in the space. Um, so there's this guy, Chris Goddard. He was formerly PDI. Before that, he was... DTRIP or DSCC, Director of Engineering, I can't remember which. He's got some great ideas around like just ecosystem-level data model stuff. It's funny. I, I don't actually talk to a lot of the tools directly. The goal at DDX was never to like interact with every tool. I wanted to work with the big source of information. So we were in a van, um, whom, you know, I love the engineering team over there. Um, you know, I know Amanda's gone, but she was a joy to work with. I mean, obviously, the Civis folks um, are, have been... You know, I know folks have issues with Civis, but I still think it's a great analytics platform. And I think they're making smart moves with moving. Like, I know there's a, like a big query push happening over there to move off of Redshift and things like that. So I think there's some smart things happening there. Trestle is kind of a, you know, just a random hitter. They're here to help other organizations succeed in their tech, tech efforts, doing good work out there. Um, like I believe they did the, the bug bounty program in 2020, which uh, I found personally useful, but has helped out a lot. You mentioned among the, your concerns or things that you had a strong opinions about uh, funding in the space. What other th thoughts or observations do you have about how you see funding coming into the tech side of progressive politics? The way tech is funded and invested in progressive politics is like campaigns, which is the problem. People don't look at tech as being this sustaining investment. People look at it as, I'm going to throw money at it for the cycle, and then I'm going to forget about it for four years, and it's going to languish, and then I'm going to repeat it again and again and again. Really, to keep infrastructure going, you need to feed it. It needs a constant source of money. It needs, obviously, when it's for profit, it needs to make its own money. But like any startup, there needs to be years of getting it to that point. And there's very few investors out there willing or smart enough to just kind of keep the investment going to keep these organizations growing and building. Uh, I think that's one of the things BDX is successful at is convincing its investors that this is a sustaining project and making sure that it's not just a fire and forget, which is what happens to a lot of tech. And that's one of the real problems in the space because right now it's there's this idea and you know, I'm not a political analyst or anything like that, that we're, midterms are going to be a bloodbath. Uh, and so no one wants to put money into things right now in the space. So there's like two, maybe three investors who are investing in tech in the midterm period because it's everyone thinks it's going to be a blowout. So why, why invest? Not realizing that investing now gives us a better shot in 2024. There's no, you know, longevity of vision. Uh, it absolutely drives me crazy right now to see people go to the sidelines after the narrow win in 2020. And that goes to not just tech investing, but investing in lots of the progressive ecosystem. I'm not an expert in it, but I've talked to a lot of people. It does seem like there's been a, a relaxing or a 
kind of just throwing up your hands, like you just alluded to about this is a bad cycle. It's just wasting money. But honestly, if you're having a bad cycle, you might want to fight harder, not uh, give up. It's double down now and give us a better chance of building the right tools for 2024. You also mentioned the tech for 2020 and having thoughts about that. What did you mean? There were essentially three big organizations in 2020. It was, you know, three big tech projects. We were one of them. We had Alloy, which we talked about already. Um, there's Civitech, which again, I don't know what the hell they do, uh, but no one's been able to tell me anything useful about them. Uh, just another kind of sink of money. Um, and that's where Alloy landed. So it kind of fits. <laughs> well, I think that, but it's just like, I think the jury's still out on Civitech and we, w- we will find out. They did bring in some, like, I know they got some smart people. Yeah. They, and they brought in some substantial money and, uh, maybe something will come of that. We, we will always hope. Yeah, I, I mean, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's your sense of higher ground labs and how they fit in and the kinds of things that they fund, which is another intriguing thing going on on funding on the left? I think they have a really amazing opportunity to help drive the direction, drive the direction towards a more cohesive set of things that work together. Um, so like they function like a Y Combinator or like another startup incubator where it's they get funding, they essentially get like some guidance on how to run a company. But I think it can be a lot more than that. I think it can be a little more prescriptive. And I, I think it should be like, I think that's something that's missing from how we approach our ecosystem is some prescriptiveness around what it should be. So what I would like to see them do is when they fund something, I want to see the money come with strings. Um, I want to see one of the strings be that, you know, this data has to move the DDX has to have an integration with DDX. It's selfish of me, but it's, you know, it's more data for the ecosystem, which is inherently a good thing. I want to see that it has to obey some data standards and API standards and API models and specifications so that all these tools play nicely together. So that when, you know, when TMC decides to offer this tool to their organizations, they don't have to spend a lot of time figuring out how it's going to integrate. That's just the source of wasted time that happens with every new tool, because there's no one way to do it. And I'd like to see more prescriptiveness around that when they're funding these people. Uh, and if these organizations can't do that, maybe they don't get the funding. A lot of them are getting funded at a stage where there may be two people with a daunting enough task to turn $100,000 into an app. I agree with you that fitting in is a huge part of it, fitting in technologically, fitting in political wise, but there's a lot to be done. And I don't know at what point you should be building towards that for sure. I agree, but it may not be within the capability of some of these enterprises early on. If they got funded to do that. Yeah. I think that's another thing is like, maybe it doesn't have to be them. Maybe there is a a standards body or a nonprofit that creates the specification, creates the framework. Uh, Like you've, you've heard of things like Databricks or even DBT. They basically provide these like, packages which you can just download and run or you can pay for like hosted versions of them like i think there's room for kind of like the standardized like okay here is a kind of standard way of building a data based application not database like a database application on top of an application database that ties the cta that ties the van that ties the ddx and it's free to use it's open source you can use it you don't have to pay a backend engineer, which are the harder engineers to find in this space. You don't have to find a person who is going to do that for you. Solve that problem once and have that be a separate organization, a separate thing, and then just have HDL mandate the usage of these kind of standardized tools to build on top of. It won't work for everything, but I think things like that can go a really long way to reducing the burden. Because I would like to see, I would like to see more kind of fail fast organizations. Uh, more like, let's give it a shot. Is it impactful? Does it work? Great. If it doesn't, get out of here. I mean, which is interesting because there, there's been a lot of that. Not everybody is making it that's getting funded, say, by higher ground. One, one of the ones that kind of fits into this conversation was Blue Link, right? Which was kind of a, a data pipeline. And then also, as I understand it, recently moved into the Civitech world. Any thoughts about that sort of that idea and play? I mean... Blue Link, Shadow, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Uh, <laughs> I know it got renamed. Um, yeah. 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 After McGowan dropped it after Iowa, they're trying to solve the 2012 problem of moving data between tools. There was no larger vision. 
Uh, it was like, how do I get data from this to that, from Hustle Act Blue? It just, it was just a mesh of pipes, not in like, I know data mesh is a thing people talk about now, not in that sense. Um, but I'm just like, I want, I have data here, I want it here. There's no cohesive vision. It was kind of enforcing the bad practices of our space, um, which is why I, I personally didn't like it as a project, because I thought I was going the wrong direction. Uh, I think we need more central source of truth, central sources of truth, rather than just shuffling data around places and not having like one place where to live. I've always thought that when there, if there are readily accessible sources of truth with data, so that let's say you could, if you have a startup and you want access to the voter file to sit your, your application on top of, you suddenly quickly facilitate innovation because in order to build this new product, a huge amount of investment that you would have had to make is done. I mean, like ballot ready, making available data on election slates across the country and things like that allow That's us good work. Uh, things like that allow us to wire up the space more quickly, allow us to, to innovate more quickly. Are there gaps in that kind of data arena that you think remain? Well, like I think just identifying the Votify one is a great one. What if there was something that kind of handled that out of the box for these new organizations and that they didn't have to do it themselves? Like if you need access to the voter file, either get it provided through the organizations you're working with. If you're a vendor, they like vendor working with a you know C4, C4 provides them access to the voter file for work like that. Like Catalyst and Target Smart and and NGP Van and the DNC to some extent provide versions of that, right? Where are they coming short, would you say? It's, I think it's a lot of work for a small organization to, one, figure out the contractual parts of it. Think of a two-person startup who isn't used to dealing with legal stuff, having to like go through the contract stuff, making sure that they're... Repeatedly, I've heard of, about people griping that it's, it's complicated and slow. And yeah, it, the, the, thing, the thing I learned at EDX the most, I think, was how hard the legal stuff was. I did a lot more of it than I expected to. And it's a time suck. And there's a reason that lawyers in this space get paid a lot of money is because it's, it's excruciating. It's a regulated space in a complex fashion. You've now got about a decade under your belt in oh, this. Jesus. <laughs> you have no idea how short a decade it sounds to me, but it is a long time and one can learn an awful lot. Uh, what, what other learnings do you think you would like to share about what your part in this has been and what is going on that other people who are trying to build, trying to work, trying to improve what's going on ultimately to win contests and further progressive missions should know, or people building companies in the space should know. I'd say like for better or worse, essentially everything in the space comes down to context and relationships. It's tech, it's data, it's whatever. The actual tech and data parts tend to be the easier things. Building stuff isn't that hard. The problems we're solving are difficult, but they're not the hardest thing in the world. But what makes them hard is the context in which we have to work. Like it's a complicated space. Like you said, FBC jail is real jail. We have to be very careful about the things we do. We also have to be aware that there are literal decades of small p politics going on here that influence everything that happens. And so being in that there are relationships going back decades too that influence things that happen. And so I think the, the faster you come to terms with um, that, if you're trying to spin up a new organization, uh, build something new in the space, you have to deal with those aspects of it, the more successful you're going to be. I know who you know is kind of a, a cliche, but people generally want good work to succeed. And having people in your corner who can help facilitate that becomes very important. Um, and I'm probably not the best example of it, but being, you know, being a personal, sociable, uh, you know, easy to get along with person goes a long way in this space uh, to getting things done. And again, the context is super important. It's the first thing I was telling my non-political staff is that things don't make sense. Things that you think make sense don't make sense. People make choices because of something that had happened 10 years ago. So the sooner you get over the fact that things don't work like you expect them to and you focus on just solving the problem you will be much more successful. What is your opinion about sort of being public about what's going on 
as you are to, you know, not to a full extent, no one ever is in sitting for this podcast. Um, do you think there's a risk in us sharing as an ecosystem what we're doing? I'm of two minds on it. As you know, it, it took me a while to do this interview with you because I didn't want to do it while I was at BDX because to me, the most important thing was just getting the job done. Uh, it wasn't talking about getting the job done. It was focusing on getting the thing built. Now I've stepped out. I've got some breathing room, some time to reflect. Very happy to talk. So insofar that talking about the thing doesn't get in the way of getting the job done, sure. I, I am a big fan of transparency. Uh, I, I think a lot of folks have erred really hard on the side of like not sharing things because they're worried about giving the other side the advantage. But realistically, I think they probably have the tech advantage at the moment because of their kind of unified ecosystem. And we haven't really taken advantages of the strength of like our laissez-faire transparent ecosystem. So I, I would lean more into like from a technical standpoint, like a lot of open source stuff that who cares they have access to it. Uh, like we don't need special licenses to make sure that Republicans don't use our software or open source software. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of time and effort. Just put the stuff out there. If you build it on the campaign, let it go free. Let other organizations take advantage of it. Just seeing how other people approach the problem will save us a lot of effort in the long term. And just let us know like what problems are we hitting time and time and time again. Like every engineer of the space has built van syncs like or van API integrations like five or six times uh, because they don't move. They're not open. Like they don't move from campaign to campaign or job to job or organization to organization. Just open source that shit. Uh, in terms of the problems, it, I think it's important for people who have been in the space for a while to talk about them because I feel like there's a lot of people who are having these conversations at bars, at coffee shops, one-on-one, and who are thinking it's like, am I the only person who sees this? Is this insane? I think it's helpful, especially for newer generations of folks in the space, to see that, like, no, no, we all see it's happening. And it's important for us to talk about it. Because the more we talk about it, the faster we can focus on finding solutions. It is routine for me to finish an interview with somebody and the record button goes off and then we talk and I hear a lot more, right? That people aren't willing to share. I think that's the nature of, I, mean, I, I don't have any problem with that. I think people are po politic in politics, probably for good reason, right? Um, but yeah, I, I, I I think I wonder about it too, because I certainly don't want to provide an advantage to somebody else. I'm very doubtful that I have in any regard, but I guess that's, it's a consideration. So with, with all this experience, I've talked to people recently who spent a bunch of years building an enterprise in this space. And they're like, I am done with politics. I'm going to do something not connected. Others are like, oh, it wasn't until I got into the, a mission job that I found that that's what I want to do. I felt better about myself. Where are you? What's next for you? Oh, you know, I figured I'd take a couple months off. I'm going to go look at a look for jobs at like Facebook or Lyft, uh, director of engineering, kind of, you know, make big moves that direction. Uh, you know, maybe Palantir, who knows? Uh, <laughs> I think you're joking. Yeah, uh, I am joking. Uh, <laughs> I very, again, another thing I have strong opinions about people who work in progressive politics and go work for shitty organizations. You're not going to work for the next instance of the Trump campaign. Oh yeah, yeah, Christ. No, I, I haven't decided yet. I'm, I'm, I've slotted myself a year off, so we'll see how much of that lasts. You know, I'm still around the space and advisement capacity, um, but really, I just want to take a break before I figure out what to do for 2024. You know, I thought about it, but I don't see myself leaving the space. I think there's a lot of work to do. I think there's a lot of interesting work to do. And I, I think there's just a lot of really good human beings in the space that I enjoy working with and like to continue to do so. Do you have any specific plans for fun things to do in that year? Oh, I am still wrapping my head around having time off. <laughs> I had myself a nice, uh, somewhat eventful backpacking trip to the White Mountains uh, this past week. Um, so that was, that was good. I'll be doing Italy in July, hopefully Japan uh, with my partner sometime uh, towards the beginning of fall, assuming the visa situation changes. Hopefully some more camping, hopefully some more cycling. All sounds pretty good. Uh, is there a question that I should have asked that I didn't? Hmm. That is a good question, but I don't think so. I think this, is, uh, this has been good. Good from my point of view. And 
I'm very appreciative for you taking the time. I've been quite curious about your organization for a while. I've made my various attempts to get the principals to talk to me and I'm, and I'm glad that you did. And I hope that I'll, I'll have a chance with somebody else as well with a different angle. Yeah. On it. They're all great. Um, and I said, the one thing I will say towards the end here is um, like, I know Lindsay has left, I have left, but I think we've both left knowing that we're really excited to see where things are going to go. Emily Norman stepped in as CEO. I know that was just made public recently. My old director of engineering, Adam Unger, is now CTO. Rebecca Malzi, former SCPA product, is now uh, chief product officer. Um, and that's a that's a power team right there. Uh, like as far as Rebecca is amazing, Adam's amazing, Emily's amazing, and I'm just really excited because it's like there's some big changes afoot at DDX, and I'll let them explain it to you sometime. But it's going to be really exciting. And um, and part of starting an organization and building an organization is properly having a transition to the next leadership, which always happens sometime. If you can speak that positively about the next generation, you hope that that's true and that it, they will figure out ways to improve it. Yeah, I'm really excited for them. That was Matthew Stafford. He was at demexchange.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.